We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Away we go, episode 153 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, September 27, 2021, the day after an ugly, off-putting, aggravating, disheartening loss for the Washington football team at the Buffalo Bills, 43-21 the final Washington now 1-2 and two on the season, as Washington now has a record of 1-2 and two or worse through three games in a season for the 10th time over the last 13 seasons, talking about 2009 through 2021. Our team just does not get off to many fast starts in games, but our team just doesn't get off to many fast starts in seasons. And this season is a continuation of that trend. The good news is that the season still is very young and so much can change. The bad news is that what was supposed to be the biggest strength of the team, the defense, has been the biggest weakness and nobody seems to know why. This game was a game for which I think we all had hope. But this game was a game for which I know I, and I'm guessing many of you, had concerns. And our worst fears ended up being realized. You know, over the weekend, we went to a party in Loudoun County. A pool party, in fact. Yes, a late September pool party uh, for the birthday of the one-year-old daughter of one of our friends. And in order to get to the house at which the party took place, we took maybe the single worst road slash interstate slash highway slash route slash whatever in the DMV. 66. Yeah. If you live in the area or the area as it is known, you know exactly of what I speak. There is no road, no interstate, no highway 
no route, no whatever, worse than 66. It never doesn't have traffic. 66 always has traffic. 66 perpetually has traffic. 66 isn't an interstate. 66 is a parking lot, okay? It doesn't matter the time of day. It doesn't matter which day. There's always traffic on 66. And the big reason for that is there's always construction on 66. There has been construction going on with 66 for I don't know how long. Does anyone listening know when this construction is supposed to be done? I don't live in Virginia, so I don't keep up on the community news in the VA. But like, what is the target date for the end of the construction on 66? Like, what are we talking about here? 2060, 2080? Like, when exactly is the construction supposed to be complete? Uh, But when my now wife and I were dating, she lived in Centerville. And when I would drive from where I lived in Montgomery County, in Moco, uh, to see her, I would have to take 66. And I would drive out to her on, you know, a Friday night, a Saturday afternoon, whatever. And it was like driving into Kabul, okay? It was like a war zone. Traffic, construction. You knew once you got off of 495 and on the 66, that was it. You were done. You were in for it. And I bring all of this up because that Washington loss at Buffalo felt like getting off of 495 and getting onto 66. You know, we're driving along. We're doing our thing. We're coming off the glorious 30-29 win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field on Thursday night football two Thursday nights ago. And we get onto this route. Okay, hmm, time to get onto 66. And then wham! It's like driving into a brick wall. And it felt like in that game on Sunday, basically from the get-go, like Washington was in trouble. Now, you held out hope that things might turn around. For a while, things kind of sort of turned around, right? Washington cut a 21-0 second quarter deficit down to 21-14 in the second quarter. Uh, But then Washington got smashed the rest of the game. And you realized as that game went on that this was going to be one of those games. And we have become accustomed to one of those games as Washington fans over the years. Next segment, the front five, my five biggest takeaways from the game. I have thoughts on the game beyond those in the front five as well. You're going to be hearing the best of Ron Rivera's post-game press conference as well. I will talk college football, my thoughts on wins for Maryland and Virginia Tech and losses for Virginia and Navy. Boy, does Talia Tungavailoa look great as a Terrapins quarterback right now. Huge game for the Terps this Friday night against number five, Iowa, at home. I'll get into a potential quarterback controversy for the Hokies, uh, more defensive problems for the Cavaliers, and more. I will talk Nationals. They lost three or four at the Cincinnati Reds as the Nets pitching this season continues to be brutal. Hey, here's a question for you. What's worse, the Washington football team's defense or the Nats pitching? Uh, Compare and contrast those two things. Uh, And I'll talk some Orioles. They split a four-game series with the Texas Rangers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards as Cedric Mullins made history. First player for the franchise since the franchise became the Orioles beginning with the 1954 season to have a 30-30 season. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. As you might expect, uh, I have received a lot of feedback on our Washington football team. Email from Rob. <laughs> so Young and Sweat are on their way to breaking the sack record. I've lost count. How many do they need? Yes, thank you, Rob. Uh, email from Steve Davis, 
referencing Ron Rivera having called this game at the Bills a measuring stick game. Right, Steve? The only stick that I saw at Orchard Park was the one the Bills used on the WFT when they took the team out behind the woodshed. My question is, how can the offense improve if the offense practices against this defense? Uh, Email from Kendall Coates. Uh, Writes Kendall, very simply, not very good. Not very good. No. No, Washington was not very good at the Bills. What the heck is going on with Washington's defense? We all have questions. Well, if you have questions or concerns regarding the health of your skin, uh, always know that you can contact Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Dr. Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. He is one of the nation's premier dermatologists. He's a big Washington football team fan. I know that Dr. Verghese is not happy on this Monday. He's a big listener of this podcast. And operating under the direction of Dr. Verghese is the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The institute focuses on medical skin care, cosmetic procedures, and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care. And specific to skin cancer treatment, the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offers something very special and cutting edge, superficial radiation therapy or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again is 301-396-3401 or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's MidAtlanticSkin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, time now for the front five. My five biggest takeaways from the Washington football team's 43-21 loss at the Buffalo Bills. Man, just saying that first portion of the score really stings, doesn't it? 43. Washington gave up a 43 spot at the Bills on Sunday afternoon. Takeaway number one, in what Ron Rivera himself called a measuring stick game, Washington came up woefully small. Before we get into the specifics of the game, before I tee off on Washington's defense, It's important to acknowledge a bigger picture reality from this game. And that reality is this. Washington's rebuild is nowhere near complete. This game was a decisive beating, a thrashing, an undeniable humbling. As the Iron Sheik likes to say, make him humble. Make him humble. Yes, Sheiky baby, make him humble. The Washington football team got made humble big time in this game. Make him humble. Yes, Sheiky. 
The Buffalo Bills put the Washington football team in the camel clutch in this game and made the WFT humble on Sunday afternoon. That final score is actually misleading. 43-21 does not tell the tale of what this game actually was and what these teams actually are. The Buffalo Bills are a Super Bowl contender. The Washington football team is a team that won a terrible NFC East last season with a 7-9 record. Those two realities were made crystal clear on Sunday afternoon. It is easy to forget that Washington is rebuilding. We don't talk about that enough. Washington is, in fact, in the midst of a rebuild. Winning the NFC East last season never changed that. This is still a team that's just two seasons removed from a 3-13 and 13 season. Now, as I have said, Washington is rebuilding while also trying to win. You can do that, especially in the NFL. I don't think that changes with a loss like what we saw on Sunday afternoon, but that first part remains in full effect. Washington is rebuilding. This is not a team that's ready for prime time in terms of swimming in the deepest of waters in the NFL. And in this game, which again, Ron Rivera himself last Tuesday called a measuring stick game, the outcome of the measurement was undeniable. Washington still has a long way to go. Make him humble. Yes, Shiki baby, make him humble. Uh, Ron Rivera, during his post-game press conference on Sunday, on his level of disappointment with this game, given that he called it a measuring stick game. A lot. We got a long way to go. Truth of the matter is we got beat today, and uh, the the things that we have to correct, we will most certainly continue to work on. Yeah, you will. Takeaway number two, Washington's defense. Horrendous. This game marked Washington's defense being bad for a third time in three games this season. But this game was a new low, like at least with the 2016 loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field in week one. You can say that Washington's defense held the Chargers to a respectable point total of 20. At least with the 30-29 win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field in week two, you can say that Washington won the game. What can you say? with this game about Washington's defense? Like, what is the silver lining? What is the positive spin? There is no, yeah, but, you know, the defense was trash. Let's just say it. The Washington football team's defense was trash on Sunday afternoon. The defense right now is an overrated and overhyped mess. So much so that I really wonder if there's something going on internally that we don't know about. And I'm serious when I say that. And I'm not trying to stir stuff up, okay? I'm not trying to make stuff up, okay? But being objective about this and trying to analyze the situation, the defense is so bad right now and so far from what the defense was supposed to be that you have to say to yourself, what is going on here? Are people not getting along? Are people clashing? You know, we have seen this before. Washington in 2016 had a terrible defense, and it turned out that there were all kinds of internal issues with that defense that season. Is something similar happening right now with this season's Washington defense? You have to wonder. The defense has been so bad that the standard explanations of 
well, the season is only three games old, or, well, a play here and a play there and things are different, or whatever else, don't explain what we're seeing. The discrepancy between talent, or at least perceived talent, on this defense and the performance of this defense is like the Grand Canyon. And so I do wonder, are players not getting along with coaches? Are some players not getting along with other players? Are some coaches not getting along with other coaches? Like, what is going on? For what it's worth, Rod Rivera, during his postgame press conference on Sunday, was asked if he has any problems with what Jack Del Rio is calling on defense right now. I have no issue with what's being called. Okay, I really don't. I think the thing that we have to do, though, is, is again, we've got to put ourselves in better situations on first and second down. And then on third down, you know, we've got to make sure we, 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 we are executing, you know, and, and we'll go from there. All right, so that's what Ron had to say, but the question remains, what is going on with this defense? Why is this happening? How is this happening? How is it that a defense that was good last season is this bad so far this season? How is it that this defense, which in theory got better this past offseason, is so bad so far this season? How is it that this defense, which is mostly healthy this season, is so bad so far this season? I know that Matt Ioannidis was inactive for Sunday, but still, that doesn't come close to explaining what we saw. And you can say that Washington's defense last season benefited greatly from playing a bunch of bad quarterbacks, and that's true, but that to me still does not explain what we're seeing so far this season. It's not like Washington's defense has been so-so, or Washington's defense has been kind of okay, or Washington's defense has had some bad moments this season, or Washington's defense has been underwhelming so far this season. No, Washington's defense has been really bad so far this year. Washington's defense has allowed opposing teams to go 27 of 46 on third downs so far this season. 27 of 46, 58.7%. Washington's defense has made each of the three opposing quarterbacks look essentially like all pros. I mean, consider Josh Allen, okay? Like, yes, Josh Allen was great last season, but Josh Allen came into this game on Sunday having been bad over the first two games for the Bills this year. Josh Allen through week two ranked just number 23 out of 32 qualified quarterbacks in the NFL in ESPN's total QBR at 44.7. Allen through week two had a yards per pass attempt of just 5.35. Allen through week two had a completion percentage of just 55.95. A big topic in Buffalo had been what's going on with Josh Allen. And yet Allen carved up Washington in ways that were unholy and impure. The Washington football team defense ended up being a slump buster for Josh Allen. Allen finished this game on Sunday afternoon, 32 of 43 for 358 yards, four touchdowns, and no interceptions. And he had a fourth quarter touchdown run. So Josh Allen accounted for five touchdowns on Sunday afternoon. And Washington had no sacks. And Washington had no takeaways. It felt like the pass rush was non-existent in this game. Washington allowed the Bills to score 43 points. Washington allowed the Bills to go 9 of 15 on third downs. Washington allowed the Bills to generate 481 
total net yards of offense. Washington, for a third time in as many games this season, got shredded by the opposing team on its first offensive drive. Yeah, that happened again, okay? It happened again. It's incredible what we're seeing so far this season. That Bills' first offensive drive on Sunday afternoon, the first offensive drive of the game. Talk about a tone setter. Eight plays, 75 yards, resulted in Josh Allen's first quarter, second and nine, 28-yard shotgun play-action touchdown pass to receiver Emmanuel Sanders, who made a diving catch in the end zone with Landon Collins as the nearest defender on a broken play. Ensuing extra point gave the Bills a 7-0 lead. How about the fourth snap of that drive? Washington giving up a Josh Allen third and 15, 20 three-yard shotgun play-action completion to receiver Gabriel Davis, who was wide open. Ron Rivera, during his post-game press conference, on another game in which Washington gave it up on third downs. Disappointment on third down. You know, we had we had a couple opportunities on, on, on defense to make some things happen, and we didn't get it done. And uh, that's the truth of the matter. Yes, it is. There was so much not to like with Washington defensively in this game. It really was amazing. Bill's third offensive drive started at their 48 off the Logan Thomas first quarter loss fumble was an eight play 52 yard drive resulted in Josh Allen's early second quarter third and four seven yard shotgun touchdown pass to running back Zach Moss who beat Cole Holcomb in coverage ensuing extra point gave the Bills a 14-0 lead. Third snap of the drive, William Jackson the third, a third and eight, eight-yard pass interference penalty and covering receiver and Maryland product, Stefan Diggs. Now, uh, this to me was a garbage call. Uh, Diggs himself appeared guilty of the penalty, not William Jackson the third, but this is another instance of a costly defensive penalty by Washington already this season. Fourth snap of the drive in the penultimate snap of the first quarter, John Bostick's ankles got broken, and Cole Holcomb was guilty of a missed tackle on a Josh Allen first and 10, 17-yard completion to running back Zach Moss. Washington's linebackers again in this game had all kinds of issues. Bill's fourth offensive drive started at the Washington 17 of Taylor Heineke's second quarter, second and six shotgun interception to safety Jordan Poyer. Third snap of the drive, Josh Allen, a second quarter, third and seven, 14-yard shotgun touchdown pass to tight end Dawson Knox on a back shoulder throw. Cole Holcomb got beat by Knox in coverage, although Knox appeared to push off of Holcomb. But still, touchdown given up, ensuing extra point gave the Bills a 21-0 lead. Bills' sixth offensive drive resulted in Tyler Bass's late second quarter 21-yard field goal for a 24-14 Bills lead. First snap of the drive, Kendall Fuller got beat by receiver Emmanuel Sanders on a Josh Allen first and 10, 41-yard shotgun play action completion to Sanders. Allen made a great throw despite getting hit by Deron Payne on the play. Yes, it was a great play by Allen and the Bills, but Fuller gets beat there. I tell you, Kendall Fuller and William Jackson III, neither guy has looked great through three games. Okay, let's just be truthful about it. Your two biggest money corners have not played up to the levels of their pay so far this season. Bills' seventh offensive drive started at the Bills' 20 with just 25 seconds left in the second quarter. I got to be honest with you, this drive, maybe more than any other drive in the game, drove me nuts. The Bills went right down the field. Washington's defense just allowed Josh Allen on the drive to go four of four for 51 yards, and the Bills, in a matter of seconds in terms of game time, got themselves a score. Tyler Bass, 48-yard field goal on the final snap of the first half. That was a clinic 
that the Bills put on. You start a drive at your own 20 with just 26 seconds left in the first half. Josh Allen goes again, 4 of 4 for 51 yards, and you get points out of that drive. Bill's eighth offensive drive was the Bill's first offensive drive of the second half. So the previous drive lasts for like no time. This drive ends up lasting for like an hour and a half. This drive by the Bills, a mammoth 17 play, 93 yard drive that consumed 8 minutes, 17 seconds off the clock, resulted in Josh Allen's third quarter, second and goal, five yard shotgun touchdown pass to receive Romanuel Sanders, who was open near the back left corner of the end zone. The Bills failed in their attempt at a two-point conversion, and so the touchdown gave the Bills a 33-14 lead. And things could have been worse because we had in this game at the Bills on Sunday afternoon a play reminiscent of the Darius Slayton play in the win over the Giants at FedEx Field. Now two Thursday nights ago, Bills' second offensive drive resulted in a first-quarter turnover on downs Fourth snap of the drive, receiver Stephon Diggs wide open behind Washington's defense, but Josh Allen's throw was off as he got hit by Deron Payne on a first and 10 shotgun incompletion. Ron Rivera during his postgame press conference on Sunday on whether he is surprised by how his defense is playing given the level of talent. Yeah, I, I think the thing that, again, we're, we're, things that we have to go back and look at is that, is that we have a lot of talent but we got to get them to play as a unit, and, and that's on us as coaches. We got to make sure that things that we're doing, the things that we're, we're creating for them, are things that they can work and, and go out and function and, and, and be a unit together. Okay, and then how about this from Ron on his defense at the end of his post game press conference? I think it all adds up together because I promise you, when I put the tape on and we're going to see some mistakes, we're going to sit there and say, man, we did that last week. We're not learning. We got to we got to make sure we're long. We got to make sure, and, and that's that's what my fear is when I get a chance to watch that tape. Is I'm going to feel like we didn't learn anything the first two weeks. Yeah, I thought that that was some real brutal honesty from Ron Rivera right there. And you just take a step back and you look at what went on with this defense in this game. I mean, take a listen to the pass rush success or lack thereof for the vaunted Washington defensive line. For Pro Football Focus, Chase Young in this game had 41 pass rush snaps, but just six pressures. Good for a pass rush winning percentage of 14.6%. Montez Sweat in this game, 36 pass rush snaps, just three pressures. Good for a pass rush winning percentage of 8.3%. Jonathan Allen, who had been playing very well, 43 pass rush snaps, just two pressures, good for a pass rush winning percentage of 4.7%. The guy who brought it was Deron Payne. He did have a good game at the Bills. Deron Payne, 42 pass rush snaps, 11 pressures, pass rush winning percentage of 28.6%. Okay, you can function with that. You can operate with that. But Chase Young, Montez Sweat, and Jonathan Allen got handled in this game. How and why is it that this defense isn't learning from its mistakes? How and why is it that this defense keeps being guilty of the same mistakes? You know, this is a talented defense. That's not up for debate. Now, we can debate the extent to which the defense is talented, but there is talent on this defense. Why isn't the defense playing up to the level 
of the talent. Why isn't the defense playing up to the level of the coaching? Even if you don't love Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio, it's undeniable. Each guy has on his track record multiple standout defenses. And I'm talking about over stints with multiple NFL teams. You can look it up, okay? These guys have very good defensive coaching track records. So with this talent and this coaching, why is it that this defense has been this bad so far this season? Again, I go back to what I made mention of earlier in this segment. It makes you wonder if there's stuff happening behind the scenes that we don't know about. Whatever the case, you really can't overstate how bad Washington's defense was in this game. And given the expectations, given the hype for Washington's defense going into the season, you really can't overstate how disappointing the defense has been. Well, if the people who currently care for your lawn are a disappointment, uh, if whoever is currently caring for your lawn isn't getting the job done, the way that Washington's defense isn't currently getting the job done, or if you're just tired of your lawn not looking the way that you want it to look, let Weedman take care of your lawn. Weedman cares for your lawn, so you don't have to, and listen closely because Weedman is offering something very special to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. But understand that Weedman provides what your lawn needs to look great. Fertilization, weed control, aeration, seeding, and a variety of other services. If you don't have the time or the knowledge to make your lawn look great, no worries. Let Weedman take care of your lawn. Weedman is a national network of locally owned franchises, so you'll receive the personal service that you deserve. Weedman answers your phone calls and emails promptly. Weedman does what it says it's going to do. Uh, all of that sounds simple, and it is, but it's not nearly as common as it should be. When you call Weedman, you're speaking to someone in an office in your area, not someone somewhere in, say, the Midwest. You're not waiting for like 30 minutes to speak to someone. Weedman actually has real answers that have meaning in your area. Uh, if you have, say, a specific area on your lawn that needs attention, Weedman will take care of that area. You're not dealing with some huge faceless corporation that treats you like a number. Weedman uses superior products that really improve your soil, and Weedman only treats what needs to be treated. Again, if you're not satisfied with your lawn or with who is treating your lawn, make the switch to Weedman. And so a beautiful spring lawn actually starts now in the fall. And so Weedman is offering something special to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast, a fall tune-up at a great price, an aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. That's about $100 off the usual price for those services. The price is a steal. The price applies to lawns of up to 6,000 square feet. So here's what you do. Call 571-340-3400. When you call, make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast. So you get the special deal. Again, an aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. Again, about $100 off the usual price for those services. That phone number again, 571-340-3400. And make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast. So you get the special deal. I want you to benefit from this deal. Uh, you can also Google Weedman and make a web request. Just make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast. Weedman, a great lawn at a great price with great personal service. It's the front five, my five biggest takeaways from the Washington football team's 43-21 loss at the Buffalo Bills. I still cannot say the 43 without shrieking in terror. Uh, takeaway number three, Taylor Heineke. No, he wasn't great, but he was far from Washington's biggest problem. 
You can't say that Heineke played really well because he had two bad interceptions and some other bad plays, but Heineke also was trying to make plays in a game in which his defense kept giving up plays. And Heineke's pass catchers were guilty of three drops. Uh, More on that in a bit. And Heineke did make a number of good plays. So was this his best game as a Washington quarterback? No. Was this some wretched game? No, I would not say that. Uh, Heineke went 14-24 for 212 yards, two touchdowns, and two interceptions. He was sacked just once. He had eight carries for 21 yards and a touchdown. He committed an illegal forward pass penalty. He led a Washington offense that went just two of 11 on third downs. Rod Rivera, during his postgame press conference on Sunday, on Heineke's performance in the blowout loss at the Bills. Offensively, uh, I think um, getting in the situation we did, a couple times I thought Taylor pressed a little bit and tried to make a little bit more happen than he needed to. Uh, That last drive he had uh, was really indicative of taking what was out there. And that's what, you know, we talked about before he went out there. I, I know Scotty and, and, and uh, you know, the coaches were telling him, you know, Kenny, that, uh, hey, let's just, we're, we're not going to go into that, that hurry-up mode. We were going to work a regular offense, uh, go through a regular sequence just so Taylor could continue to get to work, and we were going to try and, you know, press a two-minute thing. So we wanted to work on that stuff. Yeah, so the bad from Heineke obviously featured the two interceptions. Heineke interception at number one, Washington's third offensive drive, third snap of the drive on a second quarter, second and six at the Washington 39. Taylor Heineke throwing a shotgun interception to safety Jordan Poyer as uh, Heineke with his pocket collapsing appeared late to getting to his left and then made a bad floater of a pass. Ensuing Bill's offensive drive started at the Washington 17, resulted in Josh Allen's second quarter, third and seven, 14-yard shotgun touchdown pass to tight end Dawson Knox. Ensuing Bill's extra point gave the Bills a 21-0 lead. Heineke's second interception, Washington's ninth offensive drive, fourth snap of the drive on a third quarter, third and 12 at the Washington 9. Taylor Heineke, a shotgun interception, to safety, Micah Hyde. Bad decision by Taylor Heineke. Ensuing Bills offensive drive started at the Washington 17. Did result in just three as opposed to seven. Uh, Tyler Bass third quarter 29-yard field goal for a 36-14 Bills lead. But also on this drive that resulted in Heineke's second interception of the game. Third snap of the drive. In fact, the snap right before the interception. Taylor Heineke committed a second and eight five-yard illegal forward pass penalty for throwing the football after crossing the line of scrimmage. You've got to know where that line of scrimmage is. Heineke did not, and he got called for the penalty. And then the next play was that Heineke interception to Micah Hyde. Heineke also had multiple near picks. A Washington seventh offensive drive resulted in a late second quarter punt. So the second snap of the drive was the snap on which Brandon Sheriff got banged up. But also on that snap was what appeared to be a Heineke interception. But instead, uh, the snap ended up being a no play due to three penalties on the Bills. Fourth snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke had a near pick on a second and six shotgun completion on which corner Taron Johnson had a pass defense on a pass intended for Adam Humphreys. Uh, Heineke was more impactful as a runner in this game as compared to what went down in the win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field on Thursday Night Football two Thursdays ago. But Heineke also had some mixed results running with the football in this game. Washington's 11th offensive drive resulted in a fourth quarter turnover on downs. Heineke had two tough results on runs on this drive. Six snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke did not do a good enough job of making sure he wasn't down on a third and five four-yard shotgun scramble. And then on the seventh snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke got stuffed for a one-yard loss on a fourth and one under center 
quarterback sneak run. Uh, Washington's 12th offensive drive, 10 plays, 75 yards in garbage time. Uh, Washington began the drive trailing 43-14 in the fourth quarter. The drive did result in Taylor Heineke's fourth quarter, fourth and goal, two-yard shotgun touchdown pass to Logan Thomas on a fade route ensuing extra point cut Washington's deficit to 43-21. But the 10th snap of the drive and the snap right before the touchdown on a third and goal at the seven, Taylor Heineke got blasted by safety Jaquan Johnson on a five-yard shotgun scramble on which Heineke did not get out of bounds or just get down. Um, That was bad. That was one of those classic instances of Heineke taking an unnecessary hit. And if this guy is going to stay healthy and put to rest these durability questions, he's got to avoid shots like that. That was totally unnecessary. Heineke thankfully got up just fine, but that was a nasty looking shot that he took from Jaquan Johnson. Now, all of that said, there was plenty of good from Taylor Heineke in the blowout loss at the Bills. Washington's fifth offensive drive started at the Bills' 24, thanks to Dustin Hopkins' recovery of his kickoff that followed Antonio Gibson's second quarter, second and eight, 73-yard touchdown reception. Fifth snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, a second quarter, second and goal, four-yard shotgun scramble touchdown run as he did the pylon thing again. Uh, Heineke running the ball in from about the Bills' 20 and scoring via diving headfirst at the front right pylon. Ensuing extra point cut Washington's deficit to 21-14. A tremendous play by Taylor Heineke as once again the guy's legs come into play on a big play. He has so much courage when he's running. I mean, sometimes it's like too much courage, right? Like we just talked about it with the play that resulted in that nasty shot by Jaquan Johnson. But there aren't many quarterbacks in the NFL who can make that play. Like Taylor Heineke is in the upper echelon of NFL quarterbacks in terms of speed and athleticism. That's not an exaggeration. That's not an overstatement. The guy really is tremendous as an athlete, as a runner, and we saw that there on that touchdown run. Uh, Heineke also had a great throw on the drive. Third snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, a third and four, 14-yard shotgun completion to Logan Thomas. Uh, Washington's fourth offensive drive, a mere two-play touchdown drive. Second snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, a second quarter, second and eight, 73-yard shotgun play action touchdown pass to Antonio Gibson. Now, Gibson did the bulk of the work on this play. Clearly caught the ball at about the Washington 22 and then exploded downfield. But Heineke on the play beat the blitz uh, as he just got rid of the football with multiple bills coming right at him. So that was a good play by Heineke. Ensuing extra point cut Washington's deficit to 21-7. You had the garbage time touchdown. Washington's 12th offensive drive, 10 plays, 75 yards. uh, Results in the Taylor Heineke fourth quarter, fourth and goal, two-yard shotgun touchdown pass to Logan Thomas on a fade route, ensuing extra point cut Washington's deficit to 43-21. I get it. You have to take what happened on this drive with a grain of salt, but there were some good things on this drive. The touchdown pass was one. Uh, the seventh snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke had a first and 10, 37-yard shotgun play action completion to Terry McLaurin on a big catch and run. Also on this drive, the eighth snap uh, on a first and goal at the Bills 7, Taylor Heineke like miraculously ducked out of pressure and took a shot from linebacker Matt Milano on a shotgun completion in the end zone. But again, the athleticism coming into play, not many quarterbacks could have evaded the pressure uh, that was present on that play. Washington's eighth offensive drive was the opening drive of the second half, resulted in a third quarter punt. But the first snap of the drive, the first offensive play of the second half, Taylor Heineke, first and 10, 15-yard under center play action boot completion 
to Terry McLaurin. And even the play that resulted in the Logan Thomas lost fumble, uh, that was a good throw by Heineke. Washington's second offensive drive, third snap of the drive. Heineke, first quarter, third and eight, 17-yard shotgun completion to Logan Thomas. Uh, but he then had a lost fumble. Ah, yes, the work of some of whom Heineke threw to. That brings us to takeaway number four. Washington pass catchers did not help out Taylor Heineke nearly enough. Uh, Washington pass catchers in the win over the Giants did a great job of helping out Heineke. Washington pass catchers in his blowout loss at the Bills did not help out Heineke nearly enough. You start with that brutal loss fumble by Logan Thomas. Now, look, Logan Thomas is a good player, and he did make some plays on Sunday, but this giveaway was a killer. Uh, Washington's second offensive drive, third snap of the drive. Logan Thomas had a first quarter loss fumble, happened while he was fighting for extra yardage. Ensuing Bill's offensive drive started at their 48, resulted in Josh Allen's early second quarter, third and four, 70-yard shotgun touchdown pass to running back Zach Moss. Ensuing extra point gave the Bills a 14-0 lead. Also for Logan was a bad penalty. Uh, Washington's ninth offensive drive resulted in Taylor Heineke's third quarter, third and 12 shotgun interception to safety Micah Hyde. The first snap of that drive was Logan Thomas committing a first and 10 five-yard holding penalty on an Antonio Gibson run. Now, Thomas did finish with four receptions for 42 yards and a touchdown on four targets. The touchdown catch was impressive. Uh, Washington's 12th offensive drive, 11th snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, fourth quarter, fourth and goal, two-yard shotgun touchdown pass to Thomas on a fade route as Thomas made a nice leaping catch while essentially posting up on safety Micah Hyde and suing extra point cut Washington's deficit to 43-21, but it's hard to ignore the lost fumble. It's hard to ignore the penalty. Uh, also, Washington was guilty of three drops in this game. Antonio Gibson, Deami Brown, and Cam Sims each was guilty of a drop. Washington's fifth offensive drive started at the Bills' 24, thanks to the Dustin Hopkins recovery of his kickoff that followed Antonio Gibson, second quarter, second and eight, 73-yard touchdown reception. Uh, this drive did result in Taylor Heineke's second quarter, second and goal, four-yard shotgun scramble touchdown run. But the fourth snap of the drive and the snap right before the touchdown on a first and goal at the four, Antonio Gibson had a drop on a Taylor Heineke under center play action booting completion. Uh, Washington's 10th offensive drive resulted in a third quarter three and out. Third snap of the drive, Deami Brown, who was wide open, had a drop on a Taylor Heineke third and seven shotgun and completion. Washington's 11th offensive drive resulted in a fourth quarter turnover on down. Second snap of the drive on a second and nine for Washington at its three. Cam Sims had a drop on a Taylor Heineke shotgun and completion. Also, J.D. McKissick was guilty of a costly penalty. Washington's first offensive drive resulted in a first quarter punt. Third snap of the drive, J.D. McKissick, a third and two 10-yard pass interference penalty, negating a 16-yard reception by Terry McLaurin. Now, questionable penalty, perhaps, but still, it goes down as a penalty. And so you add all this up, right? The costly Logan Thomas fumble, three drops, multiple penalties. Can you help a brother out? I mean, here you have Taylor Heineke playing in his first road game as a Washington quarterback, facing a very good Bills defense in a game in which Washington's defense is atrocious, and you have all of these mistakes being made by Washington pass catchers. Perhaps Taylor Heineke should take legal action against his pass catchers. Well, no, Heineke would never do that, of course. But I do want to tell you about a law firm that is ready to represent you if you've been wronged, Paulson and Nace. Uh, Paulson and Nace handles complex personal injury, medical negligence, and wrongful death cases. The services of 
Paulson and Nace are available in D.C., Maryland, and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace is a family law firm. The Naces are DMV through and through. Big Washington football team fans. Paulson and Nace has decades of experience trying cases to jury verdicts and fighting for those injured through no fault of their own. Barry Nace and Chris Nace are both past presidents of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the D.C. Trial Lawyers and has just tried two cases in D.C. Look, I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. These are good people and smart people who are excellent at what they do. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. It's very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel as if you've been wronged, if you have a complex personal injury, medical negligence, or wrongful death case, or you think that you may have one but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yeah, you're not obligated to anything. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Make sure that you say, hey, I heard about you guys on the Al Galdi podcast. Here's what I got going on. Uh, Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let their family take care of yours. It's the front five, my five biggest takeaways from the Washington football team's 43-21 loss at the Buffalo Bills. And takeaway number five, Dustin Hopkins, yes, made one of the best plays that he has ever made for Washington. Hopkins delivers. Yes, Hopkins delivers. So Dustin Hopkins did not attempt a field goal in this game, but he made one of the biggest plays in the game. Hopkins recovered the football on his kickoff that followed Antonio Gibson's second quarter, second and eight, 73-yard touchdown reception as Hopkins kicked the ball high and into the wind, got a favorable bounce that saw the ball go back toward Washington, and then recovered the ball. Uh, The ensuing Washington offensive drive started at the Bills 24 and resulted in Taylor Heineke's second quarter, second and goal, four-yard shotgun scramble, touchdown run, ensuing extra point, cut Washington's deficit to 21-14 as Washington went from trailing 21-0 to trailing 21-14 in less than three minutes of game time in the second quarter. That was something else. Uh, But the kickoff was a great call by special teams coordinator Nate Katzer. You know, kicking the ball into the end zone was going to be difficult uh, anyway, given the wind. So the idea was to balloon the kick high in the air and force the Bills to come up and make a play on the ball. And sure enough, the play worked out to perfection. Dustin Hopkins with the big recovery. Ron Rivera, during his post-game press conference on Sunday, on the special teams highlight of the game for Washington. When you're in, you know, when you're kicking into the lanes, you kick it as high as you can and cover as fast as you can. See what happens. Yeah, and what happened was something good. So there you go, the front five. My five biggest takeaways from the Washington Football Team's uh, 43-21 loss at the Buffalo Bills. Takeaway number one in what Ron Rivera himself called a measuring stick game, Washington came up woefully small. Takeaway number two, Washington's defense was horrendous. Takeaway number three, no Taylor Heineke wasn't great, but he was far from Washington's biggest problem. Takeaway number four, Washington pass catchers did not help out Taylor Heineke nearly enough. And takeaway number five, Dustin Hopkins made one of the best plays that he has ever made for Washington. 
As for some more positives from the game. Yeah, so I did want to hit on a few other things that I liked from an otherwise no good, very bad day for the Washington football team. 43-21 loss at the Buffalo Bills on Sunday afternoon. So Antonio Gibson's touchdown catch. What a play that was. Uh, Gibson did not have a very good game as a ball carrier for the first time in three games this season. 12 carries for just 31 yards. That works out to 2.58 yards per carry. He also had a drop, but on his only other target of the game, he had a 73-yard touchdown catch. Washington's fourth offensive drive, the second snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, a second quarter, second and eight, 73-yard shotgun play action touchdown pass to Antonio Gibson. And Gibson was awesome on this play. Caught the ball at about the Washington 22 and then exploded downfield, ran by multiple Bills defenders. And then how about what Gibson did toward the end of the play? Outstanding job of plowing through Bills corner Tredavious White and diving at the front right pylon for the touchdown. Washington needed to start paying rent for that front right pylon Uh, in the end zone there with what Antonio Gibson did on his touchdown and what Taylor Heineke did on his touchdown run. Uh, But man, what a play by Gibson. Ensuing extra point cut Washington's deficit to 21-7. I mean, honestly, that is one of the best runs after a catch that I can remember from a Washington player. I mean, that really was something else. That's the second longest touchdown reception by a Washington running back in franchise history, the longest is a 78-yard touchdown reception by Matt Jones in a 47-14 blowout of the New Orleans Saints at FedEx Field in November 2015. Also from this blowout loss at the Bills, some good stuff from J.D. McKissick. Uh, yes, he had that penalty that I talked about during the front five, but McKissick finished with three carries for 23 yards and two receptions for 15 yards on two targets. So Washington's first offensive drive resulted in a first quarter punt. This was the drive that included that McKissick penalty, the third and two 10-yard pass interference penalty that negated a 16-yard reception by Terry McLaurin. But the first snap of the drive was a J.D. McKissick first and 10, eight-yard under center handoff run. Uh, Washington's seventh offensive drive resulted in a late second quarter punt first snap of the drive. J.D. McKissick, a first and 10, 11-yard shotgun handoff run. You had Washington's 11th offensive drive resulted in a fourth quarter turnover on downs. Third snap of the drive. Taylor Heineke had a third and nine 11-yard shotgun completion to J.D. McKissick, who did a nice job of getting around linebacker and Virginia Tech product Tremaine Edmonds for the necessary yak for a first down. So some good stuff again from Gibson, some good stuff again from McKissick, and some good stuff again from Terry McLaurin. Uh, who for a second time in three games was not targeted nearly enough. That's the shame of the game from a Terry McLaurin perspective. Uh, But McLaurin not being targeted a lot, that was as much a function of Washington not having the football as anything. Uh, But McLaurin did still make plays in this game. Four receptions for 62 yards on seven targets. Uh, Washington's third offensive drive resulted in that Taylor Heineke second quarter, second and six shotgun interception 
to safety Jordan Poyer. The first snap of the drive, Heineke at first and 10, 10 yard under center play action completion to Terry McLaurin, who made a nice leaping catch. Washington's eighth offensive drive was the opening drive of the second half, resulted in a third quarter punt. First snap of the drive, Heineke first and 10, 15 yard under center play action boot completion to McLaurin. Washington's 12th offensive drive resulted in the Taylor Heineke fourth quarter, fourth and goal, two yard shotgun touchdown pass to Logan Thomas. Seventh snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke at first and 10, 37 yard shotgun play action completion to Terry McLaurin on a big catch and run. But yeah, uh, only four catches ultimately for Terry McLaurin. Only seven targets ultimately for Terry McLaurin. Washington did not have the ball enough. Washington ended up losing the time of possession battle by 11 minutes, 14 seconds. Washington ran 50 offensive plays to the Bills' 77. This is a result of Washington's terrible defense, This also is a result of Washington not being great on offense. I mean, you got to be fair about this. Washington went two for 11 on third downs in the game, okay? So it's not like Washington's offense was blameless in this game, but the problems begin with the defense. Very hard to win with that kind of a difference in possession of the football. You losing time of possession by 11 minutes, 14 seconds, you running 27 fewer offensive plays than the opposing team runs. It's hard to win when you don't have possession of the football. Just like it's hard to win when it comes to selling your home if you don't have the right real estate agent. The right real estate agent is John Granlund of Real Broker. Listen up if you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn. If you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going. If you're even just thinking about selling your home, contact my guy, John Granlund, a.k.a. John G., And understand this, whereas Ron Rivera loves his position flex, John Granlin offers commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, position flex, although you got to be worried about a lot more than just position flex right now. But yeah, John Granlin offers commission flex. Commission flex is very simple. Flexible commission rates. Not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, don't pay 6%. Don't get sucked into paying 6%. Let John Granlin go to work for you. John Granlin will put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John Grandlin has a menu of commission packages from which you can choose, including selling your home for free. Yeah, zero commission. Some conditions do apply, but interviewing John Grandlin is a no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do. So you don't spend needlessly, and there is never any obligation to list or sell. This is all about making the most money possible for you, putting the most money possible in your pocket. Call John Grandlin now at 703-537-6747. Do yourself a favor. Call John Grandlin. He's a great guy, terrific sense of humor, very easygoing, and most importantly, he understands the real estate market in the DMV. That phone number again is 703-537-6747. When you call John Granlin, make sure you mention to him, hey, I heard about you on the Al Galdi podcast. And make sure that you ask him about what I keep telling you about, the commission flex. Let the commission flex save you 
thousands of dollars. You can also visit John G at johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Granlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, John Granlin is the master of commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron. Just like position flex. Although, again, Ron, uh, you have some other things to be thinking about right now. I'll get to the college football weekend, including another great game for Maryland's Talia Tungavailoa and a potential quarterback controversy for Virginia Tech after this. Washington football team season is in full swing, and there's no need to exhaust yourself searching all over the internet to find Washington football team tickets. That's because TickPick, that's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K, is the original no-fee ticket site and the only ticket site that you'll ever need as your go-to for all NFL tickets. TickPick got rid of all of those awful service fees that the other ticket sites charge. This allows TickPick to guarantee the best prices on all of its NFL tickets. Don't believe this? Look, if you can find better prices for the same seats on another ticket site, TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in the purchase price. We're all excited to watch the WFT this season. Whether you're looking to watch Young Sweat and the defense battle Mahomes and the Chiefs or Brady and the Bucks at home or wanting to travel with McLaurin and the guys to watch them play at Rodgers and the Pack or at Carr and the Raiders or you want to hit up the division games, TickPick has you covered. Again, TickPick guarantees the best prices on all of its NFL tickets, no more of those ridiculous service fees. So here's what you do. Visit TickPick.com slash Galdi right now and use the promo code Galdi to save $10 on your first order of Washington football team tickets. That's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K.com slash Galdi and use the promo code Galdi. TickPick.com slash Galdi and make sure that you use the promo code Galdi. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, let's talk some college football from week four. Maryland, Virginia, Virginia Tech, and Navy were all in action. For the Terrapins, another win, uh, 37-16 over Kent State at Maryland Stadium in College Park. Terps are 4-0 and for the first time since 2016 with a huge game looming for this Friday night. More on that in a bit. Now, this win over Kent State was not a no-doubter. Uh, Terps led at the end of the first quarter by just a 7-6 count. Terps did win the rest of the game, though, 30-10. But there was some sloppiness from Maryland. Terps had nine accepted penalties for 120 yards. Terps had multiple special teams issues, including kicker Joseph Petrino missing a third-quarter extra point attempt. And the Terps gave up some big passing plays. The Terps allowed Kent State quarterback Dustin Crum to throw for 308 yards on just 33 pass attempts. That's 9.33 yards per pass attempt. Crum had completions of 52 40 and 34 yards. So this was not an entirely clean performance by Maryland, but this was a winning performance. And the Terps defense did total five sacks, did hold Kent State, which runs an up-tempo offense to just 5.73 yards per play uh, and just four of 16 on third downs. The biggest positive for the Terps, again, was their quarterback, Talia Tungavailoa, who has been outstanding so far this season. In this game, he went 31 of 41 for 384 yards, three touchdowns, and an interception. He was sacked just once. How about this now with Talia? He, in each of Maryland's first four games this season, has earned an overall grade for pro football focus of above 86.0. The PFF grading scale is 0 to 100. Talia has been above 86.0 in each of Maryland's first four games this season. And Talia so far this season has not recorded a single turnover-worthy play for pro football focus. Now, uh, Talia's interception in this win over Kent State uh, did seem to be at least somewhat his fault. Uh, The pick came on the first snap of the Terps' second offensive drive. Talia on a first and 10 at the Maryland 35 in the first quarter through behind receiver Rakim Jarrett on a shotgun play-action pass, and the ball went off of Jarrett and was intercepted. Uh, What exactly is a turnover-worthy play in the eyes of PFF can be dicey, so you don't have to take that as gospel, him having had zero turnover-worthy plays so far this season. But the point is that Talia was terrific again, and this game was a continuation of Talia playing really well. Uh, Talia is number 20 among qualified quarterbacks in the FBS in ESPN's total QBR at 76.9. You look at his three touchdown passes on Saturday. Talia had a first quarter, first and 10, 33-yard shotgun play-action touchdown pass to receiver Dante Demas Jr., who was wide open at the 17 and then ran untouched into the end zone. Demas finished with four receptions for 108 yards and a touchdown. Talia had a third and goal, six-yard shotgun touchdown pass to receiver Rakim Jarrett on the first snap of the second quarter. Talia on this play doing a nice job of corralling a high snap with his right hand and then lobbing a pass to an open Jarrett in the end zone and Jarrett made a nice diving catch. And Talia had a third quarter, second and three, nine-yard pistol play action touchdown pass to tight end Corey Deitches who broke through an attempted tackle and route to the end zone. Another bright spot for Maryland, running back Teon Fleet Davis, seven carries, 60 yards, two touchdowns, had a third quarter, first and 10, 
yard pistol handoff touchdown run. And so next up for the Terps is one of their biggest games in years, home to number five Iowa this Friday night at eight. The Hawkeyes are four and oh. The Hawkeyes are number two in the FBS in defensive efficiency for ESPN. Number two, a big test for Talia and the Terps this Friday night. Well, Virginia had a big test this past Friday night, and the uh, Cavaliers failed that test. Cavs fell to 2-2 two and two with a 37-17 loss to Wake Forest at Scott Stadium in Charlottesville. Cavs now are 0-2 in the ACC. Very disappointing performance for Virginia. I thought that the Wahoos would win this game. They usually have won at Scott Stadium under head coach Bronco Mendenhall. This loss was just the Who's third loss over their last 22 games at Scott Stadium. But this wasn't much of a game. Uh, Virginia trailed 10-0 in the second quarter, 23 at the half, and 27-10 in the third quarter. And the big concern for the Cavs right now is their defense. Uh, Virginia's defense is brutal. Uh, the Wahoos defense got carved up for a second consecutive game. Who's allowed Wake Forest to go 7-15 of on third downs? Who's allowed Wake Forest quarterback Sam Hartman to go 17-29 of for 270 yards, three touchdowns, and no interceptions? The Who's did not register a single sack. The Who's allowed Wake Forest running backs Justice Ellison and Kristen Turner to combine for 25 carries for 140 yards and a touchdown, 5.6 yards per carry. The touchdown was an Ellison second quarter, third and goal, one yard shotgun handoff touchdown run. The first play of that drive was an Ellison first and 10, 63-yard shotgun handoff run to the Virginia 12. Ellison, by the way, went to the Flint Hill School in Oakton, Virginia. Uh, as for Virginia's offense, uh, Cavs quarterback Brendan Armstrong did have another big game in terms of passing yardage, but uh, the Cavs' passing game was not nearly as good as it had been in each of the previous two games. So Armstrong threw for 407 yards. You take that on its own. He became the first Virginia quarterback ever to throw for at least 300 yards in each of four consecutive games. And Armstrong became just the fourth Virginia quarterback ever to have at least five 300-yard passing games in his career. Matt Schaub is the uh, all-time leader with eight. But you can't always just go by how many yards a quarterback threw in terms of judging how the quarterback did. Armstrong's 407 passing yards came on 59 pass attempts. Uh, that works out to a yards per pass attempt of just 6.9. That's one of the reasons why I often will cite yards per pass attempt, because I think that's much more telling than just plain passing yards. Uh, Armstrong went 33 of 59, good for a completion percentage of just 55.93. So this is not a great game for Brennan Armstrong. It wasn't all on him, okay? He got brutalized in this game. Virginia did not protect Armstrong well. He got sacked six times, including four times in the second quarter. Uh, Armstrong had two touchdown passes versus one interception. Uh, Armstrong had a third quarter, second and 10, 17-yard shotgun touchdown pass to tight end and Oklahoma State graduate transfer Jelani Woods, who made his way into the end zone despite catching the ball between two Wake Forest defenders. I tell you, Woods is such a load. One of those Wake defenders bounced off of Woods. Woods is listed by Virginia as being 6'7", 265 pounds. He finished this game with four receptions for 73 yards and the touchdown. And Armstrong had a third quarter, first and 10, 22-yard shotgun touchdown pass to receiver Dontavian Wicks. Uh, despite Armstrong not catching the shotgun snap, uh, which appeared to be low. Armstrong did a nice job of recovering, moving to his left and making a great tight window throw to Wicks in the end zone. Wicks finished with eight receptions for 114 yards and the touchdown. Uh, Virginia's running game was decent, but because of the nature of the game with UVA trailing, the running game 
could only be used so much. Running back Wayne Taulapapa did not play due to a concussion that was suffered in Virginia's previous game, the 59-39 loss at then number 21 North Carolina on September 18th. And so you had Virginia running backs Mike Hollins, Devin Darrington, and Ronnie Walker Jr. combining for 10 carries for 66 yards. Darrington, by the way, a graduate transfer from Harvard. Uh, he went to Bullet School in Potomac, Maryland. i tell you something else. Virginia has a penalty problem. Uh, the Cavs in this loss to Wake Forest had 11 accepted penalties for 83 yards. The Cavs in their loss at Carolina had nine accepted penalties for 102 yards. 20 accepted penalties combined for Virginia over the team's last two games. And now we have another short week for Virginia. Next up for UVA at Miami this Thursday night at 7. How about Virginia Tech? on Saturday afternoon. A way too close for comfort game at home against Richmond, which is an FCS school. Now, the Hokies did win. Uh, they improved a 3-1, and 21-10 win over Richmond at Lane Stadium in Blacksburg. But like I said, this win was way too close for comfort. I mean, first of all, you have Richmond, which is an FCS school. Second of all, Richmond played most of the game without starting quarterback Joe Mancuso due to an injured right hand. And if you're a Tech fan, you knew that Tech losing this game was not unfathomable. Uh, the Hokies have a history of stunning September losses. September 2018, then number 13, Virginia Tech lost at Old Dominion, 49-35, as ODU backup quarterback Blake LaRusa came off the bench, went 30 of 49 for 495 yards, four touchdowns, and no interceptions. Yet the back-to-back -back losses to East Carolina, September 2015, Virginia Tech lost at East Carolina, 35-28, September 2014. Then number 17, Virginia Tech lost at home to East Carolina, 28-21. And then you had maybe the all-timer in terms of an upset loss for Virginia Tech, September 2010. Then number 13, Virginia Tech lost at home to James Madison in FCS school, 21-16. Thankfully, the Hokies avoided the loss, but this was not a great performance for Tech. Uh, now, the problem for Tech in this underwhelming win over Richmond was not Tech's defense. Defense was good. Uh, Tech held Richmond at just 10 points, just 4.02 yards per play and just 3 of 14 on third downs. The problem for the Hokies was their offense, which was responsible uh, for just 14 points. Uh, well, technically 12, if you don't count the extra points, but you get the idea. But the Hokies' other touchdown came on a second quarter 60-yard punt return touchdown by receiver Tavion Robinson. And Hokies quarterback, Braxton Burmeister, now is teetering as the Hokies' starting quarterback. Uh, he had another game in which, you know, he wasn't bad, but he also wasn't great. And most telling of all, Burmeister got removed from the game briefly for Knox Kadem. So Burmeister finished 17-27 for 212 yards. That's 7.85 yards per pass attempt, a touchdown, and no interceptions. He was sacked twice. But head coach Justin Fuente inserted Kadem into the game on a second-quarter Hokies' offensive drive that started at their six. Uh, that was an interesting spot to go to Kadem. You're beginning an offensive possession at your own six. And Kadem, on the second snap of the drive, on a second and 10 at the six, threw a shotgun interception on a delayed rollout. Ensuing Richmond offensive drive started at the Tech 16, resulted in a one-play touchdown drive, and the game was tied at seven. But make no mistake, Kadem being inserted into the game was an indictment of Burmeister. Uh, Fuente, during his postgame press conference, said that the Hokies' offense, quote, struggled, end quote, and was, quote, pretty inconsistent to say the least, end quote. Fuente also said that Burmeister gave the Hokies, quote, some good, some bad, end quote. 
You know, these are not ringing endorsements of Braxton Burmeister. Uh, as for why Fuente went with Kadem in that spot, again, a second quarter Hokies offensive drive that started at the Tech 6. Uh, here's what Fuente had to say. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, it was the timing of him going in was not prescribed. I mean, I met with Braxton and Knox on Sunday of last week and told them at some point Knox was going to play in the first half. Um, how much or how little, like, this wasn't a deal where one guy needed to be looking over his shoulder or whatever. Like, the facts were Knox was going to play at some point and also Braxton was going to go back in. Like, that was, that was the way it was going to be. I didn't know when. It's always hard to put a timing on those things because of the flow of the game and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, on first down, we run the ball and don't help ourselves. We don't get north and south, and now we're in second and long. And Knox is in a tough situation there, backed up on second and long. But that's part of playing quarterback, too, you know, is, is being, able, being disciplined enough to go throw the ball away and, and go live to play the next down. So, um, I mean, I wish it would have turned out differently for him. Uh, but, you know, where the ball was should – should be inconsequential to how he performs. Yeah, there it is. If not a quarterback controversy right now for Virginia Tech, we at the very least have quarterback instability. Uh, Justin Fuente is that pleased with the play of Braxton Burmeister. Hokies don't play another game until Saturday, October 9th, when they host number 12 Notre Dame. And then there's Navy, which on Saturday night was better, uh, but still lost again. Uh, Navy fell to 0-3 with a 28-20 loss at Houston. Uh, the midshipmen, who got outscored by a combined 72-10 over their first two games of the season, were better, but the mids were not good enough. Mids blew a 17-7 halftime lead. Navy's defense was very good in the first half, but had problems in the second half. The mids allowed Houston quarterback Clayton Toon in the second half to go 14 of 17 for 162 yards, a touchdown, and no interceptions. Navy had another special teams gaffe, allowing a late first quarter 73-yard punt return for a touchdown by Houston corner Marcus Jones. Now, it's worth noting, Jones was arguably the best punt returner in the FBS last season, uh, during which he over 17 punt returns averaged 1982 yards per punt return. I mean, think about that. Nearly 20 yards per punt return for Marcus Jones last season. So that's not an easy defend, uh, trying to contain Marcus Jones on punt returns, but Navy got got by Jones via that late first quarter 73-yard punt return for a touchdown. And Navy's offense, which had been woeful in each of the mid's first two games of the season, still wasn't very good. Uh, this game was Navy's first game since firing assistant head coach, offensive coordinator, and quarterbacks coach Ivan Jasper, but then rehiring him as quarterbacks coach, so you've had some unusual drama for Navy in recent weeks. Uh, but Navy in this game scored just 20 points, averaged just 4.76 yards per play, went just 3 of 15 on third downs. Uh, Navy started Xavier Arline at quarterback for a second consecutive game. He finished with 19 carries for 64 yards and a touchdown. Did go 3 of 6 passing for 83 yards, no touchdowns and no interceptions. He got sacked once. Arline had an early first quarter, first and 10, 40-yard under center triple option touchdown run. That was great to see, but Navy just didn't have much happening offensively the rest of the game, and Navy had a killer 
early fourth quarter loss fumble on a bad exchange between our line and the center with Navy trailing by just four at 21-17. Ensuing Houston offensive drive started at the Navy 26 and resulted in a touchdown. Next up for Navy, home to UCF this Saturday afternoon at 3.30. Well, as we make our way through the remaining games in the Nationals 2021 season, the ultimate truth about the Nats in 2021 continues to stand out like a flashing neon sign. Uh, That truth is the Nats pitching is really bad. Uh, The Nats pitching has been by far the Nats' biggest problem this season. It is a problem that in no way is going away as this season winds down. Nationals lost three or four games at the Cincinnati Reds. 3-2 win on Thursday night, but then an 8-7, 11-inning loss on Friday night, a 7-6 walk-off loss on Saturday night, and a 9-2 loss on Sunday afternoon. So the Nats ended up allowing 24 runs over the final three games in the series. The Nationals now this season have a starting pitching ERA of 464, The Nationals now this season have a relief pitching ERA of 5-0-2. The Nats now are 64-92 on the season. There is no bigger reason for that record than the pitching. The thing for this season to always remember is that this season represented a complete collapse of the Nats pitching, more so with the rotation than with the bullpen. The Nats bullpen has been a problem for years but the Nats pitching has got to get better if this team is going to be better sooner rather than later. Uh, So some thoughts from this National Series loss at the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, Juan Soto did have another good series. He was your starting right fielder and number three batter in all four games here for the Nats. Soto over the four games in the series, four for 11 with two homers, two singles, and eight walks. I mean, that's preposterous. Eight walks for Soto in the series. He now has a major league leading on base percentage of 471. He has a major league leading walks total of 138. And if you're into the batting title race, uh, Juan Soto now is in a virtual tie with the ex-Nat Trey Turner of your Los Angeles Dodgers for the major league lead in batting average. Never mind just the national league lead, but Soto and Turner each has a batting average of 322. Trey Turner, if you carry out the average even further, is slightly ahead of Soto. But like I said, virtual tie at this point. And it's coming down to the wire between Soto and Turner and another ex-Nat, Bryce Harper of the Philadelphia Phillies, uh, is involved in this thing as well. But it was another productive series for Juan Soto. Do not want to lose sight of that. His candidacy for National League MVP did continue. I tell you who else had a big series. And this is maybe the most encouraging thing going on with the Nats right now. K-Bert Ruiz, he is busting out. Uh, So Ruiz was an ad starting catcher in each of the first three games in the series, and Ruiz was productive offensively in each of those three games. Uh, Ruiz in the 3-2 win at the Reds on Thursday night, one for four with a double. Ruiz in the 8-7, 11-inning loss at the Reds on Friday night, three for five with a leadoff homer, an RBI single, and an infield single. And Ruiz in the 7-6 walk-off loss at the Reds on Saturday night, one for four with a solo homer and a walk, and he had two standout defensive moments. He threw out two runners on the base pass. Ruiz in the bottom of the fourth gunned down Kyle Farmer at second base in his attempt to advance on a pitch in the dirt. And Ruiz in the bottom of the fifth with runners on first and second, one out, and the Nats nursing a 5-4 lead throughout Delano DeShields Jr. in an attempted steal 
of third base. Uh, Kiber Ruiz was coming off like a franchise catcher over the first three games in this series. And, you know, that's what he's supposed to be. I mean, he's a top 100 prospect in baseball. He and Josiah Gray were the top two prospects in that batch of four prospects who the Nats got back from the Dodgers in that late July trading away of Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. And Ruiz, who was underwhelming for a while here at the major league level for the Nats, really has come along over the last, you know, week and a half or so. Ruiz now over his last eight games with the Nats, 16 for 34. Yeah, 16 for 34 with two homers, two doubles, 12 singles, a walk, and nine RBI. He is known for his bat-to-ball skills. This is a guy who makes a lot of contact, doesn't strike out often. We had seen that even when he was struggling. But it's not like he was ever really striking out that much. He was making contact. He just wasn't squaring balls up. Well, he has gotten to squaring balls up. He's hit for some power here lately. Like I said, two homers, two doubles. Uh, Still hasn't drawn many walks, although he drew a walk in the game on Saturday night. And he has looked terrific as a batter here lately. Uh, Ruiz did not start the game on Sunday afternoon. That's because Riley Adams finally started the game here for the Nationals. It had been forever uh, since Riley Adams had started the game. Uh, Adams was an ad starting catcher in this 9-2 loss at the Reds on Sunday afternoon. Just his second start over the Nats' last 15 games. I mean, Riley Adams has been buried on that Nationals bench in large part because we've seen a lot of Kate Barrett Ruiz, but also we've seen more of Alex Avila lately than we've seen of Riley Adams, which I just don't get. I mean, you know, everybody likes Alex Avila. Seems like a swell guy, but he's retiring. And this is his only season with the Nats. It's not like the Nats are indebted to him to make sure that he gets a bunch of plate appearances down the stretch. But anyway, uh, Riley Adams, who has looked good, uh, continued to look good in albeit limited playing time. Uh, he went 0 for 2 on Sunday afternoon, but he drew two walks. Uh, top of the third, drew a leadoff four-pitch walk. Top of the seventh, drew a leadoff seven-pitch walk, despite having been down to the count at one point, one, two. So Riley Adams now over 85 major league plate appearances with the Nats has an on-base percentage of 424, uh, which is outstanding. Remember, the Nats got Adams from the Toronto Blue Jays in the trading away of Brad Hand in late July. Uh, the Blue Jays ended up DFAing Hand and Adams, and again, limited playing time, has looked really good. And if nothing else, seems to certainly have the potential to be a really good number two catcher for the Nationals moving forward. Uh, there has been talk of him maybe playing some first base as time goes on as well, just to get that bat into the lineup. I actually thought that we might see some of Riley Adams at first base for the Nats in this series at the Reds. You had Yadiel Hernandez on the paternity list from Thursday to Saturday, uh, but what the Nats ended up doing was just starting Andrew Stevenson in left field, which you could have done in theory was put Josh Bell in left field. He's been playing some left field over these last few weeks and put Adams at first base, but the Nats may not have felt that Adams was uh, major league game ready uh, to be starting at first base. Luis Garcia had some big hits in this series for the Nats. He was the Nats starting second baseman in all four games in the series. Garcia in the 8-7, 11-inning loss at the Reds on Friday night. One for six, left five men on base, but the one was a huge hit. Uh, Garcia in a Nats three-run ninth off Reds reliever and former Oriole Michael Givens had a two-out game-tying two-run opposite field single to left field to tie the game at seven. Garcia in the 7-6 walk-off loss at the Reds on Saturday night, two for five with an RBI double and a single. And Garcia in this 9-2 loss at the Reds on Sunday afternoon, one for four with a double. Uh, Garcia in the Nats' one-run ninth had a leadoff double despite having been down in the count at 1.02. Garcia is slugging 490 this month. Uh, This is another guy who had not been hitting for much power, but has hit for a lot more power lately. He's been racking up the doubles as another one on Sunday afternoon. So 
Good to see Luis Garcia doing uh, as he has been doing. He's been moved up in the lineup as well with Yadiel on that paternity list. Davey Martinez had Luis Garcia as an that's number five batter in each of the first three games in this series. Uh, Carter Keboom did miss two games over the weekend. He was a late scratch from the Nats lineup on Friday night due to left forearm soreness, but he was back out there for the Nationals as a starting third baseman on Sunday afternoon and looked good. Two for four with a double uh, and a single. Keboom top of the third, double off the left field wall. Keboom in the Nats one run fifth, a one out opposite field single to right field on an 0-2 pitch. You know, Keboom's been scuffling a lot. Perhaps the forearm was a bigger issue than we realized, but he had his first good offensive game in what felt like a really long time uh, with what he did on Sunday afternoon. Lane Thomas had another productive series for the Nats. Uh, Lane Thomas was an Nats starting center fielder and number one batter in all four games, and the guy just continues to deliver a Thomas in that 8-7, 11-inning loss at the Reds on Friday night, one for four with a key double and two walks. Uh, Lane Thomas in that Nats three-run ninth-inning rally had a two-out opposite field double to the right center field gap. Uh, Thomas in the 7-6 walk-off loss at the Reds on Saturday night. Two for five with a solo homer and a single. The home run coming at the top of the fourth. A first pitch leadoff homer to center field for a 5-3 Nats lead. The homer going a projected 404 feet for StatCast. I tell you, Lane Thomas has power. Been great to see that. And then Thomas in the 9-2 loss at the Reds on Sunday afternoon. 0 for 4 with three strikeouts, though he did uh, draw a walk. As for the Nats' woeful pitching in the series, uh, we'll run through what happened from a starting pitching standpoint backwards here. So we'll go through the final three games. So Josh Rogers was the Nats' starting pitcher for the 9-2 loss at the Reds on Sunday afternoon and struggled for the first time in five starts for the Nats at the major league level. I mean, look, Josh Rogers was never supposed to be a part of of this Nationals rotation, that he had been pitching surprisingly well was a nice story, but he had pitched well against some bad teams, and you kind of felt like there may have been a reality check coming, and uh, there was a reality check in a lot of ways on Sunday afternoon. Three runs in four and two-thirds innings. He gave up seven hits, two homers, two doubles, and three singles, issued four walks. Uh, He had three strikeouts. He threw 102 pitches over the four and two-thirds innings. Rodgers, over his first four major league starts for the Nats, over 25 innings, had an ERA at 216. Uh, Things did not go as well for Rodgers on Sunday afternoon. Eric Fetty struggled again in this series. 7-6 walk-off loss at the Reds on Saturday night. Fetty, five runs in four and two-thirds innings. He gave up seven hits, three doubles, and four singles. He issued three walks and a hit-by-pitch. Had just one strikeout. He threw 96 pitches over the four and two-thirds innings. As the decline of Fetty this season continued, it's been maybe the single most disappointing thing over the last few months. I mean, you could make the case. Eric Fetty, who looked like he was busting out this season, first 10 starts had an ERA of 333. Well, he now over 27 starts this season has a career-worst ERA of 526. His season just has completely come apart at the seams. And, you know, while he's had a decent outing here or there, And he has had some strikeouts. Uh, Fetty just has not been anything close to a consistent quality pitcher. And we saw him struggle again on Saturday night. I mean, I really don't know where you go here with Eric Fetty. 2014 first round pick. The Nationals are lacking enough in organizational pitching depth to where you figure Fetty will be back in some form for next season. But I don't know. His time as a starter for the Nationals may be ending. And maybe the Nats just view him moving forward as some long-term reliever type. Uh, It's tough. But on a team with real pitching depth, Eric Fetty would not still be starting games. I mean, it just is not happening for him 
as a major league starting pitcher. And it's a shame because, again, for a while this season, it looked like it was happening. Uh, And then Paolo Espino struggled in the 8-7-11 inning loss at the Reds on Friday night. Paolo was not good uh, for just a second time in six starts. He has been good again lately, but uh, he was not particularly good on Friday night. Gave up three runs in five innings. He gave up five hits, two homers, a double, and two singles. Did issue no walks, but uh, he had just two strikeouts, and he threw 86 pitches over the five innings. And so that's the thing. As Nats starting pitchers continue to not go deep into games, the Nats bullpen continues to be leaned on a ton and the bullpen continues to have problems. I mean, this has been a story throughout this season. That 8-7-11 inning loss at the Reds on Friday night. Nats in that game used eight relievers. Eight! I mean, I know it's an 11-inning game, but still eight relief pitchers in even an 11-inning game. Uh, the first four relievers combined to allow four runs over the sixth and seventh innings, talking about Alberto Baldonado, Andres Machado, Patrick Murphy, and Sean Nolan. Uh, you had the 7-6 walk-off loss at the Reds on Saturday night. Five Nats relievers in that game combined to allow two runs in three and two-thirds innings. And then in this 9-2 loss at the Reds on Sunday afternoon, you had two Nats relievers combining to allow six runs in three and a third innings and totaling five walks, one of which was intentional. The two relievers for Sunday, Ryan Harper and Sean Nolan. Harper allowed four runs in one official inning of work. He got the final out in the bottom of the fifth, but then in the bottom of the sixth, loaded the bases and gave up a two-out grand slam by Kyle Farmer on a blast to left field for a 7-1 Reds lead, despite Farmer having been down at the count at 1.12. The homer went and projected 394 feet per stat cast, and the Grand Slam marked the 14th Grand Slam allowed by the Nats this season. That ties the 1996 Detroit Tigers for the most Grand Slams ever given up by a team in a season in Major League history. That is remarkable. This Nationals pitching staff, I mean, you talk about an indignity, that's an indignity. The 2021 Washington Nationals have tied the 1996 Detroit Tigers for most Grand Slams given up in a season. It's been a bizarre thing because it's been a lot of different Nats pitchers who have given up Grand Slams this season. Max Scherzer gave up a Grand Slam to a San Diego Padres reliever, Daniel Camarena, at one point this season. So, like, nobody has been immune to this, but geez, 14 Grand Slams given up by Nationals pitchers this season. And that also stands out in this way. The Nats, for so much of this season, have not been very good when it comes to hitting with the bases loaded. So that juxtaposition has been a big deal. Nationals batting with the bases loaded has largely been bad. Nationals pitching with the bases loaded has largely been bad. Again, the Nationals now on the season are 64 and 92, and you have a better understanding for why. And then Sean Nolan on Sunday afternoon gave up two runs in two and the third innings on a double, a single, and three walks. Just six games are left in the Nats season. Next up is a three-game series at the Colorado Rockies. So cover your ears and eyes and hide the women and children when it comes to what could be happening to the Nats pitching staff in that series, given what almost always happens at Coors Field in that mild high air. And that is that pitchers give a whole lot up. Uh, Game one in this series, Monday night at 840. Josiah Gray will be the Nats starting pitcher. Well, as the Nationals are a bad team winding down their season and doing so most recently with a four-game series, the Orioles are an even worse team winding down their season and doing so recently 
via a four-game series. Oh, split a four-game series with the Texas Rangers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. 3-0 win on Thursday night. 8-5 loss on Friday night. 3-2 win on Saturday night. 7-4 loss on Sunday afternoon. Uh, O's now are 50-106, and 106, tied with the Arizona Diamondbacks for the worst record in the majors. Who will finish with the worst record in MLB? That's the pennant race to be following the rest of this season, at least if you're an O's fan. Uh, O's have a major league worst run differential of minus 278. So the things that actually mattered if you're an Orioles fan from this four-game split with the Rangers. First of all, Cedric Mullins made history. Uh, Cedric Mullins in the 8-5 loss to the Rangers at Camden Yards on Friday night, one for three with a three-run homer and two walks. The homer was a two-out, three-run homer in a four-run Orioles second. The homer was to dead center. The homer went a projected 397 feet per stat cast. And the homer was Mullins' 30th homer this season, making him the first player for the franchise since the franchise became the Orioles, beginning with the 1954 season, to have a 30-30 season, a season in which a player has at least 30 home runs and at least 30 stolen bases. That had never happened for an Oriole, i.e. a player for the team since the team came to Baltimore and became the Orioles. Uh, The Orioles, prior to being the Baltimore Orioles with the St. Louis Browns, there was a guy who had a 30-30 season with the St. Louis Browns many years ago. The immortal Ken Williams in 1922. But for the Baltimore Orioles, there had never been a 30-30 guy. Cedric Mullins is that first guy. So another thing to add to the list of great things that Cedric Mullins has accomplished this season. He has been by far the best player on the Orioles this year. He has been by far the biggest bright spot on the Orioles this season. And you really can't say enough about the job that he has done. I mean, Cedric Mullins, offensively, defensively, as a base runner, has been terrific for the Orioles throughout this season. His slash line for the season now, batting average of 299, on base percentage of 369, slugging percentage of 535. He has been among the best outfielders in the sport this season, and good for him for getting to 30-30. You know, he's the first player in the majors since 2019 to have a 30-30 season. This is not something that happens every year. Uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. of the Atlanta Braves and Kristen Yelich of the Milwaukee Brewers in 2019 had been the last guys to have 30-30 seasons. But Mullins uh, gets to that 30-30 plateau with that home run on Friday night. Some other good stuff from Orioles building blocks in this four-game split with the Rangers. Uh, Ryan Mountcastle in the 8-5 loss on Friday night, 2-for-5 with a couple of singles. Austin Hayes in the 3-2 win on Saturday night, 1-for-4 with a two-out double in the bottom of the eighth inning. Uh, In terms of the pitching for the Orioles in this series, John Means had a so-so outing for the O's in the 7-4 loss to the Rangers at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon. Three runs in five innings. He had eight strikeouts versus no walks. You love that, but did give up seven hits, a homer, two doubles, and four singles. He threw 108 pitches over the five innings. I mean, I would say this was a six-consecutive start in which Means was at least decent. He's been better lately off really having struggled for a while. Uh, But, you know, Means, I mean, he wasn't great in this game. Three runs in five innings is not great. Uh, He was coming off a really nice outing. Two-nothing win at the Philadelphia Phillies last Monday night. Means in that game, six and two-thirds scoreless innings, six strikeouts versus one walk. He has been the Orioles' best starting pitcher this season. No, that's not saying much, but he has been the best starting pitcher this season. But even Means this year has kind of tailed off 
in terms of like what he was earlier in the year. And maybe what he was earlier in the year was unsustainable. John Means over his first eight starts this season had an ERA of 121, a whip of 071. Remember, he threw a no-hitter in a 6 nothing win at the Seattle Mariners on Cinco de Mayo. So like, was he that guy? No. But, you know, you would like to see him get back to being if not a certifiable ace, then someone who you really can count on. And like I said, he's been better lately. That's been good to see. Uh, But, you know, with John Means, I think moving forward, it's kind of like, all right, he's good, but he's not great. And I do think the Orioles should be open to trading John Means, especially given that he's under team control for years to come. Because by the time the O's are good again, I don't know that John Means will still be at his best. So if you have a guy at his peak or right around his peak, uh, now would be the time to deal him. So I'm interested to see how the O's handled John Means moving forward. Uh, A few Orioles pitchers' seasons ended over the last few days. The O's on Friday put Keegan Aiken on the 10-day injured list with a left adductor strain, so he's done for the year. Uh, Aiken at the major league level this season, 24 games, including 17 starts, 95 innings pitched. He had an ERA of 663. He had a whip of 158. Now, at least Aiken can say that he ended his season on a high note. 4-3 loss at the Phillies this past Wednesday night. Aiken had one of his best outings of the season, one run in five and a third innings. He had six strikeouts versus one walk. But no, this was not a good season for Keegan Aiken. Keegan Aiken is a guy who the Orioles took in the second round of the 2016 MLB draft at a Western Michigan University. This season, his age 26 season, he was supposed to be a part of the Orioles season opening rotation, but he struggled so much in exhibition play that the O's ended up optioning him to AAA Norfolk on March 26th, recalled him from Norfolk on May 10th, but Aiken was not very good. Uh, He was on the COVID-19 injured list from July 21st to August 1st. Aiken, in coming off the COVID-19 IL, was used as a reliever twice, but then was promoted back into the rotation because somebody else was struggling. Uh, Alexander Wells got shellacked in a 13-1 loss at the New York Yankees on August 3rd. Six runs in two and a third innings. The Orioles then optioned Wells to AAA Norfolk, and so Aiken was back in the rotation. And it just ended up being, for the most part, a really bad year. There were a few bright outings here and there, but the biggest disappointment for the Orioles this season is their pitching. You know, we talked about the Nationals pitching last segment. The most discouraging thing about the Orioles right now is that their young pitchers have not had good seasons this year. Like, at least with the Orioles' young position players, you feel good about what guys like Cedric Mullins and Ryan Mountcastle and Austin Hayes have done this season at the major league level. Save for John Means, you don't feel good about any Orioles starting pitcher this year. And it was a disappointing season for Keegan Aiken. And all you can hope is that this season was an accumulation of experiences from which he learns and that we see a better Keegan Aiken in 2022. Also, Tyler Wells' season is over. Uh, The O's on Saturday put Wells on the 10-day injured list with right shoulder inflammation. So Tyler Wells is interesting. The O's took Wells in the Rule 5 draft last December. He had not pitched in a professional game since 2018 due to elbow injuries and the COVID-19 pandemic. But Wells this season for the O's at the major league level, 57 innings. He did have an ERA of 411, but you can't always judge relievers by ERAs. Uh, Wells had a whip of 0.91, which is really good. And Wells had a strikeouts per nine innings of 10.3. He ended up becoming the Orioles' closer. So, you know, with relievers, you never know what to expect on a year-in, year-out basis. But Tyler Wells ended up being a bright spot for the O's as the season went on. This season, uh, his age, 26 season. No game for the O's on Monday. They, on Tuesday night, begin a three-game series against the Boston Red Sox at Camden Yards. 
All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday's show, episode 154, will feature much more fallout from the Washington football team's debacle of a performance in the 43-21 loss at the Buffalo Bills. I'll also postgame a big start for the Nationals' Josiah Gray at the Colorado Rockies on Monday night. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. I think it all adds up together because I promise you, I'm going to put the tape on, and we're going to see some mistakes. We're going to sit there and say, man, we did that last week. We're not learning. Make you mumble. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.